you have to burn off your glucose ketones and then excess protein and then your fat lasts in line. But if you're waking up with high blood sugars, then you probably do have some issues and you probably need to back off the, the dietary fat to allow all the fuels in your system to be depleted so you don't have high blood glucose. Nutrient poor, less tidy foods full stop are not a great idea. So if you have fat on your body that you want to burn, then it's not a matter of going zero fat, but just dialing it back progressively from where you're at the moment. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so, so excited about this interview. I am so excited that you guys get to hear it. Marty Kendall is doing so many incredible things and really shedding light on so many of the myths out there surrounding diet, fasting, keto. Reading his book really, really spoke to so many things that we get questions about all the time on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, a lot of the debates that I see out there in the paleo and keto sphere. It was so exciting to discuss all of this in today's interview. And Marty is just one of the coolest people I've ever met. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. I'm also so honored because Marty has an amazing, amazing deal just for my audience. He was so nice to do this. If after listening, you would like to get Big Fat Keto Lies, the book for yourself, which friends get it, get it now. You can actually get it for 30% off, which is so, so kind, only $9.99. So for that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash Big Fat Keto Lies. I will put that link in the show notes. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash keto lies. So I know those two links are pretty similar, but show notes, melanieavalon.com slash keto lies. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. By the way, Marty is in that Facebook group and he often engages with people in my audience, which is so, so cool. And then the second giveaway will be on my Instagram, similar concept, find the post, comment something you learned or something that resonated with you to again enter to win something I love. Those things that I love usually end up being beauty counter. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Marty Kendall. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. Oh my goodness, I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. This is with a person who, friends, this man's work is absolutely mind-blowing. If you're not familiar with his work, or even if you are, prepare to completely reevaluate possibly most, if not everything you think you know about diet, weight gain, weight loss, insulin, keto, all of these things. I am here with Marty Kendall, and we were talking about this before, how we're kind of similar and that neither Marty nor I are doctors or biochemists or anything like that. Marty Kendall's actually an engineer, but he has done really incredible work in 
something he calls his data-driven approach. So he runs the website optimizingnutrition.com. And that's actually how I first came to Marty's work. When did you start that blog, Marty? Oh, wow. About six years ago. Okay. Yeah. Because I've definitely been reading it probably about four or five years ago that I first stumbled upon it. The amount (laughs) of information contained in this blog is just absolutely incredible. It's the way I feel like I approach everything as far as reading the studies, looking at data, figuring out what is actually happening in our bodies and what is truth, if I use that word, and what is lies, which is appropriate because Marty recently released a book called Big Fat Keto Lies, which friends get this book now. Do not pass go. Do do not collect $100. Oh my goodness. Reading it, I think I was just in a perpetual state of excitement and smiling because you tackle all of these questions that have haunted me for so, so long. That was kind of an all over the place intro, but I am just so excited. So Marty, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great to chat, Melanie. So to get things started, would you like to tell listeners, for those who are not familiar with you, a little bit about your personal story and, I mean, engineer, what brought you to the interest that you have today with everything that you're doing? Yeah, engineer by day, 18 years ago, married Monica, who happened to be type 1 diabetic. Neither of us really understood what that meant at the time. And I remember asking her, hey, what's a good blood sugar? And you went, I don't know, maybe maybe six, I don't know. But since then, it's been a bit of a deep dive into trying to understand it first to work out how to have a, have a healthy pregnancy and help her control her blood sugars and insulin. And then since then, just continuing to learn and dive into the research and try to, like I've got this full-time lab rat of seeing her blood sugars and insulin 24-7 with continuous glucose monitor and a closed-loop insulin system so I can see how her insulin responds to the food she eats, her meal, when she doesn't eat, when she's stressed, and just such a, a fascinating learning experience. And I've tried to then dig into the data, all the data I could get hold of to understand more about that initially to help her control her blood sugars and insulin. Then I realized that, you know, Low-carb and keto wasn't the only way for most people, and they also needed nutrients and satiety and a whole bunch of other things that we might dig into. But, um, yeah, started the blog six years ago and um, just been met a bunch of amazing people that I've learned a ton from and just tried to put the pieces together in an integrated system that can optimize nutrition for different goals, um, different contexts, which I think is something that's really missing a lot of the time. We go, this is the best diet for anybody anywhere for the rest of eternity. But, you know, it's not, you need a little bit more nuance than that. So actually starting with that, looking at Micah's blood sugar levels and having type 1 diabetes, listeners are probably pretty familiar with the difference between type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes. But could you talk a little bit about that? Because one of the things that you talk about in the beginning of Big Fat Keto Lies is sort of the misconceptions surrounding both how modalities to treat diabetes might not necessarily apply to somebody without diabetes and also how modalities for type 1 might not apply to type 2 and diabetes. (laughs) So type 1 is where due to autoimmune condition and 
we don't fully understand why, but your pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin. It just can't produce enough to hold your energy in storage. And if they don't inject insulin, people with type 1 diabetes basically disintegrate. So all their stored energy flows into the bloodstream. They get diabetic ketoacidosis with really high blood sugars, ketones, and free fatty acids. And in a matter of weeks, they end up dying. Uh, so it's really wonderful that in 100 years ago, they worked out how to invent or, or synthesize exogenous injected insulin so these people can live. And now it's just a matter of fine-tuning the diet and the ins- insulin dosage to live a fairly normal, healthy life. But type 2 diabetes is really, you know, talked about insulin being the hormone that's secreted by the pancreas that enables your body to hold energy in storage and really what happens with type 2 diabetes is fundamentally you exceed your personal fat threshold which is the amount your body can comfortably hold in storage and that excess energy ends up flowing into the bloodstream and the vital organs and your body then works up ramps up the insulin production to work overtime to try and pack that energy back into storage because it doesn't really belong in really high levels in the bloodstream. So in type 1, if you're not taking insulin, you don't have insulin, so no insulin to the cells. Type 2 diabetes, usually too much insulin, but are the cells not hearing the insulin, in which case is it similar to type 1 in that insulin is not reaching the cells in a way? Both conditions are really a condition of insulin insufficiency. So you don't have have enough insulin in type 1 diabetes to, you don't have any. But in type 2, you don't have enough to keep it all jammed in storage in, in your fat and your adipose tissue and then visceral fat and everywhere else. So I think it's just because the like a sponge, you can only fit so much energy. You can only fit so much water into a sponge. You can only fit so much energy into those fat cells and all the other cells in your body and they just become full so you can't keep pushing more in but that differentiation between exogenous insulin and endogenous insulin which is produced by the body is really 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 important and something was a bit of an aha moment for me that like we're all banging on about insulin is a fat storage hormone and but you know if you're not injecting it your body doesn't produce more of it than it needs to hold back energy and storage while you're still eating food through your mouth. So, so as long as you're overeating food, you're over-consuming food because it's low satiety, hyperpalatable, nutrient-poor, you're going to be eating, you're going to need more and more insulin to hold that energy and storage. So really the solution for type 2 diabetes is to find a way to eat in a sustainable manner that you can then release your stored body fat and then your insulin levels drop. Okay. I think I just had the aha moment because my question, the reason I was asking that first question is I was thinking if they're both not enough insulin, why do type ones manifest like they would be too thin, but type two, you become overweight. Like why does it go two completely different ways? I spent the first couple of years in this trying to understand how I could basically turn off my pancreas and stop it producing insulin like my wife by eating you know less carbs less protein more fat and switching them out but then i realized that wait up i can't turn off my own pancreas my pancreas works i can't do it i can't be a type 1 diabetic and you don't want to be a type 1 diabetic and people with 
uh, in type 1 diabetes is a situation called diabolemia where people actually choose to underdose their insulin to run their blood sugars high to lose that weight but it's really really dangerous and all your muscle mass disintegrates and you have elevated blood glucose ketones and fatty acids in your blood and it's really ill-advisable but you know i think a lot of people in keto world think that they can turn off their pancreas by eating more fat and, and less carbs and protein so that's sort of the fundamental essence of this is that you can't turn off your pancreas if i ran around and jabbed you with an insulin needle your blood sugars would plummet energy would be stored in it would be retained in your storage and you'd get hungry because there wouldn't be enough glucose in your bloodstream and you'd want to eat all the time until you got out of this low but you know no one's jamming you with an insulin pen 24 7 and they'd be put in jail if they did and unless you're injecting excess and exogenous insulin it's all about controlling the amount of body fat you're storing by changing your diet to maximize satiety and nutrient density so that might be a a big light bulb moment for a lot of listeners so insulin it sounds like is what's the word like constitutive like so so it's constantly on right like we like, we, like it's not on and off <laughs> like it's always happening yeah and 80 percent of money's insulin that she requires every day is just the basal insulin that holds her energy and storage it's only about 20 percent of her insulin is a response to the food she eats so yeah you really need to think of insulin as a not as a fat storage hormone, but a energy regulation hormone that, that holds energy and storage while you're eating. I've thought about this a lot, and I don't know if there's an importance in the tiny difference and the implications of it, but when it's keeping fat in cells, is it doing that by literally putting the brakes on the cells, or is it just taking the foot off the accelerator? Like it's stopping the hormones that would burn fat, like HSL. Do you know if it's actually stopping fat from burning? I think it's more just stopping the release of it through the liver. So the liver converts all your stored energy into glucose and fat in your bloodstream so it can be used for energy. So it's sort of that, that break at your liver that stops it being released into the bloodstream. Okay. I don't know why I think about this so much, but I feel like there must be some importance there. I also wonder, I think you talk about this in the book about how insulin is actually more anti-catabolic rather than anabolic. Would you like to expand on that? Yeah. I mean, if you're a bodybuilder and inject insulin, you can grow more bigger muscles and those, um, you know, mass monster bodybuilders amped up on, on insulin and growth hormone and testosterone and steroids to get really, really, really big. And it can be a anabolic hormone in that way if you're injecting it. But yeah, the anti-catabolic, catabolic just means you break everything down in your body. And, you know, most of us want that to become leaner and, and potentially healthier. But if you're losing all your muscle and all your fat and everything else, you, you don't want that. So you have to find the balance between getting enough protein uh, to build your muscle and resistance training so you build your muscle while you're releasing body fat. So yeah, yeah insulin is a primarily an anti-catabolic hormone. It's only once you get to really, really high levels of blood sugar that it then starts stuffing the energy into your fat cells. And really historically in, in hunter-gatherer times, it was really not a thing to be an anabolic hormone. And, and 
your cells can take up energy through non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake without the use of insulin if you're active. So insulin is really typically not a, a dominantly anabolic hormone most of the time unless you get to that really, really high level where your pancreas has to pump out more and more insulin to try and drive it in. But at healthy levels, insulin is really just regulating the the release of energy like a, like a damn wall, like you lower the damn wall and the in, energy flows out. I think it's just so fascinating because, you know, you're, you're just talking about how we can take up glucose without insulin if we have the right situation. But then as far as fat, fat goes, one of your big fat keto lies involves this. And there's this idea in the keto world that fat doesn't release insulin or, you know, that it's this free food. Like, so what role does insulin play in fat storage? Can we store fat without insulin What's going on there, do you think? You need a little bit of insulin, but really the amount of insulin your body releases is proportional to the amount it can store and how volatile that fuel is. So when you talk about oxidative priority, you have to burn off your glucose ketones and then excess protein, which is generally not a, not a thing, and then your fat lasts in line. So you, your body can really easily store that fat and it doesn't need a lot of insulin to hold in storage so your body doesn't release a lot of insulin in response to that fat because it says hey welcome home we we love you and you can stay here forever and we've got heaps of room for you you can hang around but when it comes to glucose ketones alcohol is a little bit interesting but and and then protein your body has limited storage capacity for that so it's got to shut off the release of energy from your liver until it uses that up. So you'll see a fairly sharp spike of insulin for for fast-acting carbohydrates and a a slower response, maybe over 8 to 10 hours for protein. But then fat, you still have an insulin response, but it's lower, A, because it's over a longer period of time because fat metabolizes more slowly, but B, because, you know, your body just says, hey, I I can take that in. I've still got room in my sponge to take up all that fat energy and store it on the body. I had a major light bulb moment reading your book and thinking about this concept. And then I was actually, do you know James Clement who wrote The Switch? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, you would love him. I've got to connect you guys. He did the super centenarian study where they tested the labs of super centenarians and he has a longevity lab. He's amazing. But I was talking to him about this concept and because people often think, oh, fat doesn't seem to elicit an insulin response. So, you know, I'm not going to gain weight from it. I'm not going to store it. But I was talking with James about it and he was saying the reason it doesn't really elicit an insulin response is because it doesn't require insulin to be stored, which is the complete opposite of the takeaway that people usually take from that because they think, oh, okay, fat doesn't have a lot of insulin, so I don't have to worry about storing it. But yeah, it doesn't have a lot of insulin because you can easily just store it. Does that manifest, you think, in people who are following like high-fat, low-carb diets? Can they fall into a trap where they're over-consuming fat? <laughs> totally, totally. And, and that's where, you know, I started out, you know, Dave Asprey, need more ketones, take the Bulletproof coffee, red keto clarity, you know chase ketones, need higher ketones, just add more butter. And here I was with the butter and MCT oil and peanut butter and trying to measure my ketones and just eat more of it. 
to get my ketones high so I was losing weight and then after a year or so I was looking in the mirror and going wow you don't uh, look like this is helping with your health journey Marty so I then was more open to listen to other people like Ted Naiman and good friend Mike Julian in who runs the Optimizing Nutrition Facebook group with me and a lot of those things just dawned on me and and yeah so that was sort of a part of the journey of me understanding that chasing high ketones if they were generated by the fat I was eating was not going to lead me to optimal body composition or lower insulin because really just when you're holding more energy and storage more body fat your body needs to ramp up more and more and more insulin interestingly when you switch to like I've seen with Monica's diet once she's switched from a, a fairly standard western diet with fat and carbs to a a lower carb diet, her overall totally total daily insulin dose does drop down to much healthier levels. That's sort of a combination of body fat loss and I think overall fat requires less insulin than carbohydrate if you're on a lower carbohydrate diet. But as you said, that doesn't really matter that much because fat's really easy to store. So it doesn't require a lot of insulin to, to hold in storage because you've got so much capacity to store that fat. When you say that more fat over the long term likely leads to more insulin, is that from the actual dietary composition or the weight gain and then the weight gain leading to more insulin? So the, the, the low satiety dietary composition, which leads to weight gain. So if you're holding more body fat in storage, you need more insulin to hold it in storage. And there's charts of BMI versus basal insulin or, or waking insulin, and they're just directly so the bigger you are, the more insulin you need to hold that in storage. Okay, gotcha. For listeners, two quick plugs because you mentioned your Facebook groups. Marty has amazing Facebook groups with amazing resources. So in the show notes, I'll put links to all of those groups. Definitely check it out. And also, this is another plug to get Big Fat Keto Lies because I wish we could show the charts because you have really great charts in the book. What I loved about the fuel tank because you have this chart of the different fuel tanks and how you know we have carbs and fat and body fat and the importance of you don't have to empty like the level of where they have to be emptied is different for each tank and I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly what's the order of so blood glucose and then you and I talked about this offline and then muscle and liver glycogen free fatty acids. Am I getting this right, the right order? Body fat? Yeah. So, so you've got different storage tanks in your body and your body really can't hold much alcohol or ketones. So they're really largely irrelevant. So you've got the, the glucose in your blood, which you can maybe hold about five grams of glucose, which is what, 20 calories or so. So it's really tightly regulated. That's a, that's a really tiny amount of energy you're holding in your blood. And then you've got your liver and your muscles, which can hold about 2,000 calories worth of stored energy. And then you've got your your fat in your blood and then your fat in your body, and the fat in your body can be uh, 200,000 calories. So proportionally, it's a massive difference. But due to oxidative priority, you have to deplete your glucose first in your blood, and then the stored energy in your liver can then flow back into your your bloodstream once you've depleted that from your blood and you pointed out rightly that your muscles the the glucose sort of goes off 
to be stored as glycogen in your muscles and that really doesn't flow back into your bloodstream it just needs to be used yeah so once you've depleted your glucose in your blood and the glycogen in your in your liver you can then start to tap into the fat in your blood and then your fat in your body so you really need to start to focus on depleting the upstream fuels first but once you've done that it's not just a matter of going low carb to get no glucose in your system if you're still loading in all the exogenous fat from wherever else so you can't just have really low glucose if you're drinking butter and mct oil all day and all night which a lot of people do and like we were talking about this offline as well i recently interviewed Dave Asprey, we did talk a lot about Bulletproof Coffee and C8 and everything. And I think it works for some people, but I I think I aired that episode and then I got so much feedback in the group. So many people saying, oh, I'm going to start trying MCT Bulletproof Coffee. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) this is not like, it might work for some people, but. (laughs) Yeah. I I really think switching to a, like if if you tell someone you need to go low carb and they just drop out all the carbohydrate. It's a really hard transition. So I think adding bulletproof coffee or added like not fearing fat and adding even more fat than they normally would is a good thing because it helps them make the transition. But once you've dropped your carbs and increased your fat, if you want to lose body fat, you need to start to drop back your dietary fat. So it's just sort of a transition period. Once you've made that transition but you still have more body fat to lose, you need to dial back the dietary fat. And then once you've reached a more optimal body composition, you can then dial back in the carbs and fat to provide the energy you need to to operate with get without going insane because you, you can't yield enough energy from protein alone to be a CrossFit, a CrossFit athlete or, or, or whatever you want to be if you're really, really active. So you need to just find that balance. And I suppose that's my my thing. Optimal has never really found at either extreme of anything in nature. You need to find that balance somewhere in the middle. I'm really glad we just had that. So now I'm going to refer listeners to this conversation for a, what I think will likely be a beneficial approach to if they want to use MCTs. That conversation that we just had was very helpful. And also... This is something that we also talked about offline, but I do wonder, have you done an experiment where you do low carb, but you only have fats from C8 MCT oil? I, I've still got about two thirds of a bottle of, of Asprey's MCT oil in my cupboard that I didn't get through at all because I probably ended up with disaster pants more often than I could tolerate to continue. But um, uh, I haven't delved into that in a lot of detail but yeah i did an experiment where i did low carb high fat but the fats were only from c8 not c8 c10 like c8 mct so i was doing lean 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 meats like cucumbers and and then and c8 and i i think i was adding oh goodness probably i mean it's probably two or 3,000 calories of C8 every day. And I lost weight. I did not gain weight from it. I thought it was just me, but there's this girl on Instagram and she was on a podcast and she talked about how she did it and her friends did it and they all lost weight. And this was all from just adding C8 to the diet. I'm really fascinated by it. This is something I was saying before. I, I don't know. I researched this so much. I don't know if C8, if, if it's the exception, if it like just does not get stored as fat like does the body just preferentially burn it off yeah i I wonder if it's got such a high dietary induced thermogenesis that it uses so much energy in the oxidation that it 
you can't store it like protein. You can't really yield a lot of ATP from the protein because there's so much energy in the conversion. I'm not sure. But there's also another, you know, what was it, the um, the drinking man's diet where they just ate steak and uh, half a bottle of wine a day and they lose weight too, but probably a similar sort of approach. You've tried that too? Oh, well, you wrote a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the first sort of crazy dietary approach I tried was I realized I was thinking about the different macros and I was like, what macros don't really become fat? And I was like, well, protein and alcohol. So I was like, I'm just going to eat chicken and drink wine. I'm not not recommending that, but um, it works. It works. <laughs> so, and I actually, I just had an epiphany right before this because I was reading this really, really detailed study on insulin that is, it's so over my head. I'm going to have to read it 20 times, but it was talking about all the factors that affect fatty acid esterification in the cells. And it was saying that insulin is not the only factor, like there are a lot of other factors. And I'm just thinking about this right now. This is literally very fresh, a thought I just had. It was saying that dietary fat content, like meal frequency, but the one was lipoprotein, the involvement of that. And I'm just wondering since C8s are shuttled directly to the liver and they don't go through the lymph system, they don't use that chylomicron transport system. I wonder if that also might have something to do with it, of them not being stored. I'm on rabbit hole tangents. (laughs) You've gone further down the rabbit hole than me on that one. Coming back to something else that you discuss in Big Fat Keto Lies, and we, we've touched on it, there's this idea that to burn fat, that we have to you know deplete our carb stores, that we can't have carbs to burn fat. But you, I am so grateful to your book because reading your book, I am ashamed to admit I hadn't really looked deep into the Krebs cycle and tried to understand it. And then it just kind of, the book just kind of throws it in your face and you explain it so well. And the charts that have all these big words on them actually make sense. So again, listeners get this book, but the Krebs cycle. So what is the mind blown moment about the Krebs cycle for people who think that you can't burn fat with carbs? You're always burning fat in the Krebs cycle and that's the default place where your body oxidizes energy but but part of that energy flow part of the the cyclical nature of of the citric acid cycle and i wish i was a biochemist because i'm completely fascinated people by people who understand it but i've learned enough from my smart friends to understand that part of that one input is oxaloacetate which your body makes from protein or carbohydrate so if you don't have enough oxaloacetate from your diet your body doesn't starve it doesn't you know shut down it goes into ketosis which is where your body can then produce via ketosis ketones which are a a substitute for glucose in the brain and other vital organs that can't use fat for fuel so most of the the tissues in our body we can use fat or carbs but you know the brain the heart i think the liver can't as easily use uh, fat for fuel so it's sort of just a, a fallback mechanism in times of starvation that your body says hey i can i don't need carbs all the time and if i'm starving i've got heaps of fat on my body i can just you know default to ketosis and use the body fat until the famine's over so for listeners in case you missed it there so when we're not in ketosis and i want to make sure i'm understanding this correctly so when we're not in ketosis we have the krebs cycle so that's our 
go-to energy generation process. And to burn fat in the Krebs cycle, it requires oxaloacetate, which is made from carbs or protein. So we can burn fat with carbs. Do you know, because something you say in the book that I wanted to ask you about was you were saying that when people, I don't remember the exact quote or what you said exactly, but it was an idea that when people are entering a low carb state, that they could either, you know, do the ketosis route or that the body might just become more efficient in the actual citric acid cycle and the Krebs cycle is like an individual responder thing where some people, like do some people just stay in the Krebs cycle and they, the body makes changes to continue generating that energy that way? Yeah. I, I suppose after everybody was testing their ketones five years ago, after a couple of years, a lot of people noticed that the healthiest people had the lowest ketone levels, even though they were on a fairly you know, strict ketogenic diet. Louis Villasenor from he's a good friend of mine who runs Keto Gains. He's like testing at 0.2, 0.3, 0.4. And, and at that point you go, why the hell am I testing ketones? Because they don't actually tell me anything useful to guide my dietary choices. And then we saw it in the Verda study after two years, like after six weeks, the, the ketones rose from about 0.3 to 0.6 and then dropped back down to fairly negligible levels, 0.2, 0.3, I think it was 0.27 at one year and then two years. And it just seems as people decrease the level of energy toxicity in their system, they don't have, you know, glucose, ketones or free fatty acids as much floating around in the bloodstream. So you don't see high blood ketone levels anymore. And then when you look at the Inuit, you see that over generations and generations they they seem to have developed a genetic adaption adaptation so that they no longer have high ketone levels because the body says hey ketosis is a less efficient process for using energy and we adapt to become more and more efficient we're all about survival and efficiency so it just seems that the body over time adapts to say let's get back to the Krebs cycle so whether that's fat adaptation or whatever you want to call it but it seems that we want to go back to using the Krebs cycle as a default energy, energy production system. And if we keep on going, oh, my ketones have dropped, I need more need more butter or, or whatever, or more exogenous ketones, you're not actually helping reduce energy toxicity and doing that by chasing high ketones. So I think that's where you know the whole low-carb movement probably went a little bit off the rails is when they said, you know, ketones are good, more must be better. Let's do whatever we can to chase high ketones as the end goal. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples. 
meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Yeah. So using the Krebs cycle, do you know, because there's always this idea, they say that, you know, burning ketones is cleaner. Like, do you know if there's more oxidative stress in the different systems? Yeah, yeah there's definitely, I talk about high reactive ROS, et cetera, but yeah, I'm not sure on the detail on that, but I think anytime you have just too much energy in the system, you get inflammation. So you need to find a way to, to dial back the excess energy, which often comes from the combo of fat and carbs together. Yeah, that's a big one. So another question you tapped on and you talk about in the book as well, and that is the the different types of ketones. So I think, you know, BHB in the blood, acetone in the breath, acetoacetate, the actual energy currency of ketones of itself. I think for my listeners, it can be really confusing, like measuring blood ketones. What does that mean? Measuring breath ketones. What does that mean? You just spoke about how nutritional ketosis might be a little bit misleading or the idea of it. So yeah, could you elaborate a little bit on the different types of ketones and what they might indicate? So the liver will produce acetoacetate, which goes into the system, but it can't really be stored. So your body then converts it to BHB or hydroxybutyrate, which is sort of, a, you can think of it as the storage or transport form of ketones that it can move around the body. And then when it needs it again, it converts it back to acetoacetate, which can then be oxidized and used for energy. And then you get acetone as a byproduct of that oxidation. So yeah, I think it's important to understand that 
really when you see high BHB ketones, which are the easy ones to measure. So everybody got the ketone monitor and started, you know, I'm in ketosis, this is great. All you're measuring is the fuel that's stored in your bloodstream. And, you know, you don't really want high glucose. You don't really want high free fatty acids in your bloodstream. And neither do you want really high BHB. Some is good, some is healthy, especially when you're in an energy deficit or you're on a low-carb diet. But more is not necessarily better and just chasing higher and higher levels is is not ideal. And I've definitely seen, you know, my healthiest friends who test ketones are are having low BHB levels of 0.3, 0.4, 0.2. And if they blow into a ketonics, they're, you know, off the chart red, indicating that they're oxidizing the BHB as acetoacetate and and blowing off acetone which means they're actually using the ketones really efficiently. So Peter Atiyah talks about a, a fat flux, flux. It's sort of the, the amount stored in your system is is the balance of what's coming in versus going out. And if you're metabolically healthy and don't have energy toxicity, you don't have a whole lot of energy building up in your bloodstream because you, know, you don't need a lot. You can function really efficiently. You really feel efficient like a, a little hybrid high-performance car and therefore you don't see massive levels building up in your bloodstream, but you may be burning a whole lot of them at the same time. So measuring the BHB in your bloodstream is really hard to tell, and usually the the largest people who are insulin resistant just starting out on the keto journey are the ones that see the highest blood ketone levels, and it's not necessarily a good... It, it, if you're in an energy deficit and you're starting to lose weight, it may be a, a good sign that you're improving your metabolic health but if you're already suffering energy toxicity and you're achieving that through exogenous ketones or more added dietary fat then that may not be a good thing and may actually be sending you backwards this was another moment with your book where you explain all of this and i felt like it was the first time that i finally sort of got a grasp on the different ketone levels so again I'm just a dumb engineer trying to explain it the way I understand it. And it's like if I write, if I write it down, I can understand it, and then I'll share it. And here we are. Let me see if I understand it. I'm going to recap what you just said for, for listeners, and let me know if this is correct or if I got off somewhere. So we have ketones. So creating ketones, this umbrella of ketones. So acetoacetate is one type. So that's the actual energy current. The one you actually use for energy, yeah. And so when people first start a ketogenic diet, for example, isn't that what we measure in our urine, the acetoacetate? Yeah. And and the body says, I can't burn this. I'm not used to burning this yet. I'm going to shed it out in acetone in the urine. But it's also, it's like nail polish remover in, in the breath. See, might smell a fruity sort of taste, but after a while, the the acetone in your urine sort of decreases as your body goes. Oh, I know what to do with these ketones, and and eventually it goes. Oh, I, I don't really want to use ketosis. I'll go back to the Krebs cycle. Acetoacetate is the energy that's expelled in the urine because that's literally the energy that the cells could use for energy, but because they don't quote know how to or not accustomed to it, we release it in the urine. It gets excreted because we can't use it yet. Okay. So that's what people are measuring with urine sticks. And at the beginning of a keto diet, because their body does not know how to use the energy of acetoacetate, they probably will see high levels in their urine. Otherwise known as ketones. 
PTO. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So then, you know, because people, especially if people are just measuring urinary ketones, they might get upset when urinary ketones go away, but really it could be that it's because they're now using the acetoacetate. Definitely. But over a longer period, we see the same thing as with BHB. Okay. And so BHB, the blood one that people are measuring, I did not realize until I read your book or I might've realized, but I didn't grasp it, that that's a storage form of ketone. Like, like it has to be converted back, I think, into acetoacetate to be used. So when people are measuring that, it's, it's sort of like measuring a stored form of energy waiting to be used, not energy being used. And then the acetone, which is what we can measure in our breath. So for listeners who have a Biosense device and might be measuring their breath ketones, I think since that is a byproduct, don't we create that when we burn acetoacetate? It's like the byproduct. Yeah, it's like the off gas from the oxidation of acetoacetate. So to have high breath ketones and low glucose at the same time is a really healthy place to be. It means you're oxidizing fuel really well. So that's where the glucose ketone index comes in to have you know low glucose and high acetone is actually a more useful measure of metabolic health than the traditional glucose ketone index, which is usually low glucose and high BHB. And you can hack that by just adding more dietary fat, which again is nutrient poor, low satiety, and may not lead to optimal metabolic health over the long term. I'd heard that on Peter Tia interviewing somebody. I think Dom said that recently that, uh, you know, acetoacetate is a much better measure of metabolic health in epileptic kids. That was the interview. Yeah, it was Peter, Peter Dom and somebody else. And yeah, that's what he said was that measuring breath ketones was probably the best indicator of actually burning fat because it's a byproduct. So, and something else you talk about in your book and Jen and I have talked about this on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast so much. I, I sort of blush when I listen to those. It's like <laughs> I feel like for listeners, if you listen to my other show, I go on so many Marty Kindle fangirl. Like I'm like, I just learned. <laughs> so I'm really so happy to be having this conversation now with you. But you completely dismantle the the nutritional ketosis thought out there that we need higher ketones. Like when did the nutritional ketosis idea come about? I think the term nutritional ketosis was coined by Steve Finney trying to differentiate between diabetic ketoacidosis because everybody, what people know about ketones is that you know in type 1 diabetics when they've got a lack of insulin and they're disintegrating, they get diabetic keto- ketoacidosis, which is like ketones of 10, 20, and they're really in a bad place and need insulin in a hurry and they're... all the biochemistry goes out of whack and they're in a lot of trouble. So what they wanted to do was differentiate between diabetic ketoacidosis and a healthy ketosis that happens in a a low-carb state to say, don't be afraid of this. So they sort of defined a nutritional ketosis as a lower level of sort of 0.6 to 1.5 millimolar and then optimal ketosis of like between 1.5 and 3 millimolar in the blood BHB but that was sort of defined I actually had Steve Finney stay with me for a couple of days when he was in Brisbane here and I sat him down and went through my whole system on the computer and said check this out what do you think Steve it was really cool to be able to deep dive into it all but the whole idea of that 
optimal ketones and nutritional ketosis came about from studies that he did back in the 80s with people adapting to weight loss on a low-carb diet and another one in cyclists who had recently adapted to a ketogenic diet and that's sort of the what they calibrated it based on and the, the, the ketones that they saw in those people who had recently adapted to a ketogenic diet. So as we talked about, you know, initially your body doesn't quite know what to do with all that ketones. But over time, even in the Verda studies, we see that your body adapts and goes back to a much lower level of ketones. So I think that's what we've all realized over the last five years of chasing ketones is that, you know, they disappear and it's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and if you keep on chasing it you may not get to where you want to go it's very freeing honestly because i think so many people are just haunted by this nutritional ketosis idea and they think they have to be a certain point you know they need to be what 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 do people think it needs to be point three yeah over over point five is nutritional ketosis and you're not doing it right if you're not getting more than point five and greater than 1.5 is even better and therefore i need exogenous ketones and more butter and you know and then you see a lot of the people the diehard true believer keto people uh you know after practicing that for years and years are not thriving so and they've got really high fasting insulin levels even though they're on a technically a ketogenic diet so then if ketones aren't the end goal then what does ketosis mean what what is keto if it's not chasing a, a bhb of greater than 0.6 what does keto mean tell me i don't know like somebody tell me it's like a philosophical question why are we unless you're epileptic have alzheimer's dementia or parkinson's where high ketone levels can be really helpful because you've got insulin resistance in the brain where you need ketones to feed in the place of glucose when you can't use it Uh, you know why are we chasing keto what what does keto mean I don't know, that, that was my question. It's like I got to the point of going, what what the hell is all this about? And everybody's going down the wrong rabbit hole, chasing the wrong marker. Can we all please stop? It's very tragic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And keto over the last couple of years has been diminishing, but I think there's an opportunity to say I think there's something really useful in the low-carb movement and there's really something helpful about a low-carb diet that if you dial it into your goals, you can stabilize blood sugars and have massive, massive benefits. Like my wife has, you know, life-changing benefit of of reducing carbohydrates and prioritizing nutrient density. But if your end goal is ketosis, then you're in trouble. I've seen people with type 1 diabetes chasing ketones and they double their daily insulin dose and, and develop massive insulin resistance and obesity. And once they, you know, go back to chasing satiety with enough protein nutrient density intermittent fasting they're halving their total daily insulin dose you can measure how much insulin these people are injecting across the day not just after meals but they halve the insulin that that so the the way to reverse insulin toxicity is to attack the energy toxicity with a diet that leads to satiety so i definitely want to dive into the satiety that was a bit of a rant no, no, no. I love it. I love it. I definitely want to dive into satiety. I have a few last quick questions while we're still on the ketone. So this is something I failed to mention that is really important information for listeners not familiar with your work. Marty does not just research all of this and write about it. He does extensive 
data collection from people and actually looks at the numbers and makes these really epic charts and graphs that you're just like, wow, this (laughs) this is incredible. So for example, you have a chart in your book of 3000 people and it shows the levels of ketones and blood glucose and the correlations. And I was going to ask you, because at the high end of the chart, there are people with really high ketones, but it seems like all the people with really high ketones also had high glucose. High glucose at the same time, yeah. Does anybody ever have high ketones and low glucose? Yeah, if you're fasting for a very long period of time, like I did a seven-day fast and your blood sugar starts to drop as your ketones go up. But if you're in sort of weight maintenance, eating fairly regularly, the glucose and ketones are somewhat related and based on you know energy toxicity that if you've got high levels of glucose, you're probably more likely to have high levels of ketones as well. And the healthier people with the lower energy levels had, you know, 0.3 to 0.6 BHB in their blood and low glucose at the same time. So if you want to actually start drawing down your body fat, you need to reduce your blood glucose, which correlates with lower ketones. And, you know, don't don't continually chase ketones because you may just drive yourself to energy toxicity. Yeah, for listeners, we'll put a link in the show notes to that chart because you have it on your blog as well. I think it's Jen's favorite chart in the whole world. I think she's mentioned it on like 10 of our episodes. The one with the unicorns. Yes, yes, the unicorn one. <laughs> like this chart is well known, well known on the intermittent fasting podcast. When did you do that seven day fast? Maybe four years ago. Is that the only time you've done one that long? Yeah, I did a lot of like two or three day fasts, but I got to, got to seven days and I think I was taking a an electrolyte mix that was sort of helping me make it through and I ran out of that and then I started feeling pretty crummy and went, okay, enough. I'm in awe. I, I actually haven't done really barely anything. I think the most I've done is like 50 hours maybe. I wish I could in theory. I just fail epically. Yeah, I, I, you, you may disappear. So probably not recommended. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> so coming back to a broader topic, moving moving a little bit away from insulin and ketosis and all of that, but coming back to the diet composition, quality, satiety, all of these things, one of the biggest debates in the entirety of the nutritional world, I believe, is what has led to the obesity epidemic if it is indeed something in our diet. So the low carb people say it's the carbs, the low fat people say it's the fat. Some people say it's the specific types of fat, like the polyunsaturated fats. What are your thoughts and what have you found making the data points of the obesity epidemic? And oh, and some people say it's just calories. So calories, fats, carbs, kufas. Can I go with all of the above? Sure. (laughs) All of the above. Rob Wolf in his Wired to Eat had this bonus chapter that they didn't let him put in the book that I downloaded. It was really fascinating that told the story of how our food has changed over the last hundred years. And then like when you look at Rob talking about the paleo diet, I mean, 10,000 years ago, we managed how to, to domesticate grain as a really reliable source of energy that was really cool and things changed and we went from being hunter-gatherers to more domesticated agriculturists. But I think a lot of things have happened in the last 100 years that are completely fascinating. And if you look at Harbour-Bosch process, they worked out how to create 
ammonia fossil fuel fertilizers from methane which is natural gas back about 100 years ago in 1910 and initially was used for explosives in the world war one and then in the 30s they started to start dumping all this fossil fuel fertilizer with a couple of nutrients to maximize growth but not actually nutrient density in the 1930s so since then we've been able to produce more energy more quickly procter and gamble worked out how to create vegetable oils from seeds in 19 to 1911 and substitute that for lard so since last hundred years the amount of fat in our diet per person has risen by about 600 calories per day and then in the 1950s you see after the vietnam war and rob tells this really well that you know that they worked out there was a food scarcity shortage not enough calories available so the usda from a political perspective tried to make food cheaper so people would have enough energy so they basically said get big or get out to the farmers started using the same plots of land over and over again there's no crop rotation there's no animals involved it's just fertilizers tractors and the same plots of land over and over again with just empty energy dumped into the soil so you see over the last 50 years you've got both carbs have come up and then you've had fat coming up over the last 100 years and when you look at more carbs from refined grains and more fat from seed oils without much of an increase in protein you've just got this increase in calorie availability that correlates perfectly with the obesity epidemic so that's my smoking gun you can get into the nuances of you know poofers versus saturated fats but the i think the fairly ancillary to the the main issue that we just created these amazing hyper palatable food products from cheap energy that are really hard to not eat when they're available so we are eating more <laughs> yeah it's insane We're, the the food availability has gone up from over the last 50 years by about a thousand calories per person per day so they just had to create more and more creative ways to use all that cheap energy that they're able to create so all the the food manufacturers have worked out how to dial in to perfect the bliss point to understand how to give us a double dopamine hit from fat carbs and these artificial flavors and colorings that make it look like our food is actually nutritious and our body goes yay these foods must be amazing because they're nothing like those boring foods that are found in nature and we just you know just continue to eat more and more and more of them until we reach energy toxicity insulin resistance diabetes and every other metabolic related disease you want to name I was thinking about this when I was walking through the grocery store yesterday. You're in Australia, right? Yeah, yeah. Do they have little Debbies? Not as much, but they're pretty perfectly designed to to hit every dopamine-producing bliss point. I was looking through, and because I am always super drawn to the the brightly colored, like like Funfetti cake, which is like multicolored sprinkles, and like when it's the little Debbies and they're like bright pink or bright blue, I'm I'm just like, oh, I want it, and. I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, this is because like, I don't perceive it as this, but it's probably because my brain thinks nutrients <laughs> when it sees bright. Like you, you see bright tomato, bright orange, you know, bright vegetables. They contain nutrients because they're full of flavor and your body goes, yeah, it's the all the senses coming together to seek out the nutrients you need from food but you know artificial colorings and flavorings trick our body into thinking that they contain something we need and yeah they don't it's all lies the theme of today's show (laughs) 
Big fat artificial flavoring lies. Big fat lies about everything. Your food is lying to you. I know it is. It is. And so you keep mentioning this word satiety and I am really, really fascinated by satiety. One of the things I find really interesting is I feel like, so with the different macros and satiety, I feel like it's pretty well accepted that protein, you know, it's like the most satiety promoting food. But then I feel like I see things on both sides of the camps, but with both carbs and fat, I see like when it comes to carbs, there's this idea that carbs increase satiety, but then on the flip side, people will say, no, they just make you hungrier. And then with fat, a lot of people say that fat, it increases satiety, but the most of the studies I've shown on fat don't seem, I don't know. I feel like that's a little bit nebulous. Yeah, fat feels really satiating because you just ingested a thousand calories worth of food in one bite and it feels really satiating, but calorie for calorie fat is not more satiating than carbohydrate. Because if you ate a thousand calories of, you know, whole food, especially whole foods, carbohydrates, I mean, the amount of food of a thousand calories compared to a thousand calories of fat. It's a massive amount. Yeah. Energy density becomes a factor at that point. Actually, I had a question because in your book, you talk about how they've looked at PUFAs, polyunsaturated fats, MUFAs, monounsaturated fats, and saturated fats. And there's a chart of satiety. And you talk about how with PUFAs, up to 10%, after that, something happens. And then for MUFAs, up to 25%. And then saturated fat was up to 30%. I, I wasn't actually quite understanding what that meant. We've got this program called Nutrient Optimizer that sucks in your chronometer data. So I sat down and analyzed 40,000 days of data to understand not just the macronutrient, but the micronutrient profile with respect to how much we eat versus the proportion of energy coming from each of those micronutrients and the micronutrients they contain. So yeah, what, what we saw was that the seems, saturated fat seems to tap out. So when you're eating more than 30% energy from saturated fat, it you don't see a, a ramping up continually, but that could be just because if you're eating... Of satiety? Yeah, high saturated fat foods also tend to contain a lot of protein at the same time, and maybe not a lot of the people were drinking a lot of bulletproof coffee and MCT, but I, I don't know, it, it, not quite sure there, but definitely when you get the poly, polyunsaturated fat, the more you eat of them, the, the, the more you eat, basically. So there's no sort of satiety limit that kicks in and says, I've had enough of that. Your body just says, this is great fuel. Just keep eating and store for winter. Give me more, give me more, give me more. So it doesn't tap out to the point that you reach a satiety point. Interestingly, omega-3, the more you eat of it, the more satisfied you get and it, it taps out and you go, I've had enough salmon. I, I don't want to eat any more salmon. Similar with cholesterol seems to have a positive effect on satiety. Meanwhile, Saturated fat has a negative effect, but not as much as mono and poly foods, which is probably just because our whole food system is full of industrial seed oils that are combined with uh, artificial flavors and colorings to make them look like healthy, nutritious foods. So basically, it's hard to know if it's the actual fatty acid chain that's creating that satiety compared to the nutrients or the other macros that are typically combined with it. Yeah, it's hard to pull apart, pull apart the individual components, but Tommy Wood pointed me at a study that where they looked at high-fat keto, 
high saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fat. And it, it seems that saturated fats will make you insulin resistant sooner, but that just means your body says, I'm full, I can't eat, can't keep eating these saturated fats. Meanwhile, polyunsaturated fats, you'll keep eating more of them, you'll grow more before you reach a personal fat threshold and your body says, I can't eat any more of these polyunsaturated fats and you get insulin resistant later. It just means you're much fatter before you become diabetic, which I'm not sure is a good thing. Have you read Cyrus and Robbie's Mastering Diabetes? I haven't read it, but I've listened to a bunch of their podcasts. I'm really fascinated by, you know, they seem to be fairly open-minded. And I definitely agree that if you go really low fat, really high carb, it's really hard to overeat rice, potato by itself. Sometimes I'll I'll take a, a bunch of potatoes to work inspired by them and the satiety study back from the, the 1990s that found that you know, cooked and cooled potatoes are the most satiating food and it's really hard to overeat. So I've had them on the show. So for listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode. But like you said, I, I really like them because I've had a number of vegans on the show and everybody's been absolutely wonderful, but they are really wonderful in the fact that I feel like I can really freely engage in conversations with them. But they do talk about how saturated fat literally creates insulin resistance automatically at the level of the cell. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, but if you're also in an energy deficit, I don't think that's as big of a deal. Mm, I asked them that, yeah, yeah. Like I said, if you're eating the polyunsaturated fats that enable you to eat a whole lot more of them before you become insulin resistant, I'm not sure that's a good thing either. So I just think nutrient-poor, low-satiety foods full stop are not a great idea. So if you have fat on your body that you want to burn, then... It's not a matter of going zero fat, but just dialing it back progressively from where you're at the moment. Also in the satiety realm, what have you seen as far as the different actual nutrients, like micronutrients and vitamins and minerals and how they affect satiety? Yeah, so you may have heard of the protein leverage hypothesis. A couple of researchers from Sydney did amazing work looking at the fact that everybody, all insects, gorillas, you know, every living organism eats until they get enough protein for their specific requirements. So if you've got protein dilution, which Ted bangs on about ad nauseum, loving to death, if you've got protein diluted foods, then you just have to keep eating more energy until you get the protein you need. But I think there's definitely a nutrient leverage action happening at the same time. It's not just amino acids, we definitely see the strongest satiety response to amino acids, which make up protein. But similarly, if you get foods that contain more potassium per calorie, you'll eat less than if you see, eat, eat foods that contain more magnesium per calorie, you eat less of them. You just can't consume as many calories of these nutrient-dense foods. So we've used our data to analyze to understand not just the the minimum nutrients to prevent diseases of deficiency, really who listening to this podcast wants to just prevent deficiency. We've looked at, you know, what intakes tend to align with with optimal satiety that will tend to reverse energy toxicity and probably power your mitochondria and all your your, your biochemical pathways better to enable you to perform optimally. And Bruce Ames, have you heard of the triage theory? I have. Yeah, com completely fascinated by that. He says that basically if you get a limited amount of nutrients, your body will say 
you know, I'm just going to prioritize short-term survival. I need to get by today before I, you know, I don't care about dying in 10 years or 20 years. But if you give your body adequate nutrients across the board, it can say I can survive today, but I can also look after my body so it can survive for the long term because we've got plenty of food here. We're going to live forever and I need to not just look after my short-term needs, but also my long-term needs. So that's like a, a massive, you know, mind blow for me and he just says the you know chasing nutrient density is the most important thing you can do to to optimize longevity and it's the lowest hanging fruit and you know nobody's going for it yeah i think it's so so important this was a question i had for you i had the caltons on the show they wrote a book called rebuild your bones they're all about nutrients but they say and they referenced a study in their book showing that no formulated diet, I have to find the exact study, but it was like keto. I think they said no, no, no popular diet provides all the nutrients at the same time. Like was, yeah, none of them could provide all the nutrients that you needed. And it looked at like four different ones. So you needed to buy their supplements. Yes. <laughs> but I think a lot of listeners did get confused by that conversation, wondering if it's possible to get all of your nutrients from diet. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we, we've got heaps of people doing it. So we don't just aim for the minimum nutrients to prevent diseases of deficiency. We've defined the optimal nutrient intake, which is like two or three times typically the nutrient intake that aligns with satiety. And we've created this optimal nutrient intake score. And to get 100, you need to get the optimal nutrient intakes across the board, across all 34 vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, and amino acids. And we've got, you know, in the last masterclass, we had five people score 100. So, and lots of other people doing really well at the leaderboard. So we actually designed a system that that enables you to chase the foods and meals that contain the nutrients you're currently not getting enough of. So you don't need to, you know, maybe vitamin A and B12 are easy to get for you because you're in a omnivorous diet and maybe getting plenty of protein but you're not getting enough vitamin d or vitamin e or magnesium potassium tend to be harder ones to get so you chase out those foods with real whole foods which your body now knows what to do with the nutrients in those foods that are in the right ratios and forms that your body goes yeah i get this and whereas if you're taking a whole lot of supplements in an intense bolus, your body doesn't quite know what to do with that. It's probably just going to go, you know, I, need, I have to dump that because I, I can't digest that. So, you know, I know when I take a whole lot of magnesium or potassium or sodium in supplemental form, you're off in the toilet, just your body, my gut goes, I can't handle all that excess minerals all at once and not only does the, the the supplements go down the toilet it's all the food i just ate as well which also contain the nutrients so i'm definitely food first and definitely believe you can get the nutrients you need from food whole food you just have to choose them more wisely and uh i don't know why no, nobody's started looking at which foods and meals contain the nutrients you need it, it's very individual depending on what you're currently eating. And, and, you know, you can say these are more nutrient-dense foods, but to really dial it in, you can look at, let's track your diet for a few weeks and identify which foods and meals you actually need to fill those micronutrient gaps in your diet, which is going to be different depending on whether you're on the vegan or the plant-based or, or carnivore or keto end of the spectrum. 
like, I just know for me personally, I don't feel, I don't feel like I have the knowledge or that I don't know who has the knowledge about taking concentrated supplements, the competition and, and what to take when. And it seems like a lot of trying to control something that I think should be more intuitive with the caveat that as we talked about, you know, modern food today is often, you know, nutrient depleted. Although I do wonder, so are animal products less likely to experience that nutrient depletion that has happened from modern farming practices, like compared to vegetables and fruits? Yeah, relatively, yes, I think. But if you've got animals eating refined grains 100% of their diet for the 100% of their life, I think you'll be in the same, a similar situation. But most cows are on green grass most of their lives and therefore they're going to be in a better situation. But, I mean, the optimal situation aligns with a vibrant, alive ecosystem. Have you seen um, Biggest Littlest Farm? No. It's a movie about regenerative agriculture and it just tells the story about this couple that created a farm and got their little earthworm thing going and, and just got a really vibrant, healthy, alive ecosystem that created the, the most amazing tasting food. And, and it's when animals and plants come together and you're using the manure back in, in the system and it's just, you know, that's going to be the optimal nutrient density food as well. So, you know, that's, and I think from an environmental point of view, if we can chase that, we've created a vibrant, alive ecosystem that's going to be much more resilient for the long term than these large uh, single monocrop things that are just reliant on a whole lot of fossil fuels and fertilizers and single, you know, throw a bit of potassium in and nitrogen in there and, maximize yield sorry that was a bit of a tangent but yeah it's completely fascinating i think it's potentially the nutrient density chasing nutrient density is potentially the solution to not just our health but the planet's health if we do it right i'm so passionate about this and and for listeners i really recommend if you're interested in this reading rob wolf's sacred cow which have you read sacred cow oh definitely definitely so so good. I'm so happy he wrote it because it paints a very, very clear future about what practically is sustainability and, you know, what actually does serve the planet. And is it, you know, a completely plant-based society or is it inclusive of animals? And what does that actually look like? And what role does methane and carbon and all of these things play? And so for listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes. And I did an interview with Rob as well. Although he does talk about in the book, the thing that he gets a lot of backlash for is the nutrient profiles of conventional versus grass-fed beef and how there's not that much of a difference. I just don't think we've got a lot of data on that quite yet. I'm really interested by it. I mean, it would make sense, like you already mentioned, that you know most cattle are on pasture for a large portion of their life. I'm personally a little bit concerned about the potential toxins and then the omega ratios, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. So speaking of, you just mentioned vegan and carnivore, what are your thoughts on approaches like that? Do you think both of them can provide all of the nutrients we need? Are they sustainable long-term? Hmm. The best diet t- tends to come from a intelligently created 
omnivorous diet where you can select from any food that you want to and definitely some people have ethical issues with eating animals and you need to be a bit more intentional to get b12 and omega-3 some people have autoimmune digestive issues with eating plants and therefore they need to be more intentional to get some other micronutrients potentially potassium magnesium and, and a bunch of other minerals in their diet the thing that triggers me the most is the whole plant-based movement and plant-based sounds like a bunch of fruit and veggies on, on a plate and that's all you're eating but in reality most people can't eat a whole lot of spinach or asparagus and there's a limit they need the energy so they end up defaulting to plant-based foods which are just you know fat and carbs with artificial colors and flavorings added together and that's definitely optimal that's the the anti-optimal diet so you can have a plant-based diet which i think is all people are thinking of but if it's got no nutrients it, it's probably the worst thing you can be eating yeah i feel like people get so people get so confused and torn and it's confusing because there are people who are seemingly thriving on both sides of the spectrum that are complete opposites you know carnivore versus plant based but like you just said I think there's a lot of factors involved in how, you know, why an individual might gravitate towards any certain diet. And the way I see it is humans are omnivores. Last time I checked, like, 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 I don't know, because a lot of people make the argument that on the carnivore side that we're not supposed to eat plants. And then the vegan will, will make the argument that we're not made to eat animals. But when I look at the human digestive system, it looks like an omnivore. And maybe that's too simplistic, but... <laughs> I, I agree. But, I mean, don't... From the pro-carnivore perspective, and I, I encourage my wife just to eat you know, eat a steak every day, and that just makes the blood sugars and insulin incredible. And a lot of people do really well when they go on a elimination carnivore diet and their autoimmune and, and digestive issues improve because they've been eating the the plant-based refined crap for far too long and with gut bacterial overgrowth and a whole bunch of things we don't really understand at all I'll, I'll just use that fancy word but when you're ready you probably need to start thinking okay i'm getting beef only i'm getting muscle meat what nutrients doesn't that contain and, and what foods can i add to my diet that will help me get those nutrients and move up in terms of nutrient density because you don't want to become so fragile and potentially nutrient depleted over the long term we want to be somewhat resilient but you don't want to be eating things that completely you know give you gut distress and inflammatory reactions and histamines or whatever and that that's a whole new rabbit hole oh no 100 percent. i think people can experience massive benefits even if it is really restrictive like something like carnivore just to you know, do a reset, remove the things that might be bothering them. When you said a steak a day, you mean an, an omnivore situation or she does carnivore sometimes or has done? Basically carnivore lunch. We eat really well and get a whole lot of fruit and veggies and, and feed it all to the kids and we eat as much vegetable as we can. But I think for her, she needs to eat enough protein and a steak for lunch does really wonderfully and, and treats it really well so that's sort of and she also has autoimmune digestive issues so that really helps calm those down she doesn't do really well with egg and, and histamines so to eliminate those foods really help what do you think about people who do low carb or even carnivore and 
experience high blood sugar levels. Protein can turn to glucose, so that's okay. But I think the the issue is energy toxicity. So if you if your low carb diet is leading to low satiety, which drives energy toxicity, you just get all due to oxidative priority, you get all the fuels backing up in your system. So if you've got too much fat, then any carbohydrate you've got will just be backing up and at the top of the fuel tank overall. So you'll see high blood glucose, especially in the morning. So people go, oh, yeah, it's physiological insulin resistance and it's not a problem. But if you're waking up with high blood sugars, then you probably do have some issues and you probably need to back off the the dietary fat to allow all the fuels in your system to be depleted so you don't have high blood glucose. Speaking of that on gluconeogenesis or de novo gluconeogenesis, there's this whole debate if it's demand-driven or if it just happens. So like if you do you know, a huge bolus of protein, will that automatically convert or is it only demand-driven? I feel like I've listened to interviews with Luis and he was... I don't know if it was him. It was somebody like him um, <laughs> saying that it was demand-driven. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're insulin resistant and you've got too much energy in your system, you don't have enough insulin to balance the glucagon that is produced when you eat protein. So when you eat protein, you have a, a balanced insulin and glucagon response. So your blood sugars stay flatline, which is a healthy thing. And a lot of people, when they eat a high-protein, meal their blood sugars will fall if they're insulin sensitive so one of the hacks is to uh, if if your blood sugars are a bit elevated and you feel hungry just have some really lean protein and a couple of hours later you'll see your blood sugars drop but if you're insulin resistant then there's not enough insulin to balance the glucagon production in your liver and excess glucose will be released and you'll see your blood sugars drift up after a high-protein meal. So if Moni doesn't inject enough insulin, her blood sugars will start to drift up after a steak. It's fairly easy to control with the right amount of insulin, but if, if someone who's really ragingly type 2 diabetic and insulin-resistant eats a lot of protein, they don't have enough insulin to maintain stable blood sugars. But the solution is not to cut back on the protein. It's really to cut back on the dietary fat so you become more insulin sensitive and then the insulin and glucose glucagon response are more balanced and and you don't see elevated blood sugars after a meal so if you're leaching your protein into your bloodstream as glucose it means you don't have enough to use for muscle protein synthesis so you're actually going to be losing lean mass so the worst thing you can do is to go okay my blood sugars rise after a high protein meal I need to eat less protein. You're just going to lose lean mass, which burns all your energy, and your metabolic rates are going to slow. And you know that that's a, you know, that, that's something a lot of people have done. You know, protein bad, gluconeogenesis. Avoid protein at all costs because of insulin and gluconeogenesis, and it's it's the absolute worst thing you can do. Yeah. So that's been one of my pet peeves that I keep screaming on, on my blog posts. Luckily, that sentiment is dying down in keto world lately, but yeah, it's been a while. And I think a lot of people have suffered negatively by fearing protein due to gluconeogenesis, which is probably driving more insulin resistance and loss of lean mass, which is means you're going to be 
old and frail and fall and break your hip and uh, longevity is not going to be good after that. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for 
for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm-direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Clarifying question about something you just said. You're saying the solution if you're in a situation where you have protein but are insulin resistant, so you don't have enough insulin to deal appropriately. And you said the answer is to reduce the fat to become more insulin sensitive. Is it to reduce the fat? to lose weight, to become more insulin sensitive? Is that automatically lumped in as the next step? Yeah. So if you've got body fat that you want to burn and you need to become more insulin sensitive, then you need to progressively dial back the dietary fat to allow your body fat to be used. And at that point, you become more insulin sensitive and your body can hold on to the protein that you use to, to build muscle and preserve muscle, which is really hard to build and hard to preserve as you get older. It's really valuable energy currency anything you've got at 30 is an investment for when you're 90 a huge mind-blown moment i had recently was the idea that so when our blood sugars are elevated that the majority of that is actually from gluconeogenesis have you heard this yeah w- wouldn't disagree if you've got if you've got very low carb then on any diet i think yeah most of your glucose is coming from the glycogen stored in your liver that's being released into your blood, not the glucose or protein you just ate, instead of coming out of storage and being released. Is that what you mean? I think it was that and also just, yeah, gluconeogenesis, 
creating it. I think a lot of people think that it's all the carbs that we just ate, but it actually is likely from the liver downstream. Yeah, your body just puts it into storage and then releases it as as usual. And a lot of people go, oh, I didn't eat while my blood sugar's rising. It's like, oh, it's the stored energy that's being released. And that's not a bad thing if you're, if you're not eating, you're not hungry, and you see your blood sugars rise. It just means your insulin's dropping and your body's releasing stored energy. Do you think it's a chicken or egg situation? But especially because I'm prepping to interview Gary Tobbs for his new book, do you think when insulin versus body fat or obesity, like do we become overweight and then insulin resistant or do we become insulin resistant and then overweight or both? We become obese. We uh, need more insulin to hold that energy in storage and we become insulin resistant. It's that order. It's not the reverse. What about people who are thin but insulin resistant? It just means they have a lower personal fat threshold, whether they be, you know, South Asians, different populations are able to store different amounts of body fat before they it overflows into the bloodstream but before their fat storage tanks tap out and it flows back so you become insulin resistant at a lower body fat level but it's always it's always the stored energy from the food you're eating that leads to insulin resistance gary talks about people who fatten easily and it's a great elusive attractive thing for all those people who like to feel they're a victim of obese because I'm insulin resistant. But as soon as you, if you're insulin resistant, look, conversely, let's say you're a bodybuilder who just got down to 5% body fat for a show. They are extremely insulin sensitive and anything they eat will be stored as fat because your body wants to survive the next winter. It gets thrown at it because, you know, you just smashed it and their appetite goes through the roof and they'll just keep eating and, and often they'll become you know, sometimes obese very quickly after the bodybuilding show because they got so hungry and, and so starved themselves. And that's not to go to that extreme. is not necessarily healthy if you can't maintain it. But at the other end, if you're obese and insulin resistant, as soon as you find a way of eating that when it will enable you to have satiety and not be eating all the time, which is adequate protein and nutrients, your body will just start to offload that energy and you'll become, it just wants to offload the excess energy as soon as you stop eating. So uh, being obese and insulin resistant, your body's not trying to store more energy. It's actually can't store more energy because the energy stores are so full. Okay, wow. So a thin person who is insulin resistant, it's not that they don't look fat, but their fat cells have hit the point where the fat cells are, quote, fat. Personal fat threshold. It's so interesting, like I said, prepping for Gary because did you read his book, The Case for Keto? Uh, most of it, yeah. He gets very granular with it. He thinks there's an actual number, like an insulin number for every individual. And if you're below it, you know, you can burn and burn and store. Well, you could easily burn and store fat, but if you're above it, then you can't. Yeah, but Gary, Gary only sees the insulin response from food directly after. So he thinks that carbs raise insulin because of the carbs you just ate, but doesn't see the, the 80% of the insulin that's being produced to hold your body fat in storage. So the way to reduce insulin is to be less fat and to be holding less energy in storage. It's not just the little blips that happen after you eat. 
This is so helpful because like I said, I'm prepping to interview him. I'm so nervous about interviewing him. I'm just being really like vulnerable right now. I get nervous interviewing journalists because like what they do is ask questions. So like, I don't know. I feel like it's normally I'm the person asking the questions, but this is what they do. So like, he's going to know if I'm asking really stupid questions. (laughs) I'm really, I'm looking forward to the interview. Gary just likes to tell stories. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) It'll be a story time. He's a great storyteller. I'm excited. I'm so excited for that interview. One other thing I heard you say, and this ties into the what we're talking about with the environment and the world and food. So, you know, the idea of seasonal eating. I was listening to your interview. I messaged you about it on Facebook. You were recently on the ATP project, which I love them. I've been listening to them for years. So that was a really great interview that you did. And you were talking about seasonal eating and how you know, different seasons, we would naturally eat certain macros. It had never occurred to me that spring, for example, is sort of like a PSMF, a protein sparing modified fast. You've just got lean animals and and new fibrous shoots. And it's basically a, a, a low carb, high protein, protein sparing modified fast. Are you a proponent of people varying their macros according to the seasons? Um... Yeah, I've got a friend, Sian Foley, who wrote Don't Eat for Winter, and it's a fascinating look at how just basically our our natural environment is cyclical. I think we're just stuck in perpetual autumn with foods that breast milk, acorns, nuts are generally just available in autumn to help you get fat, or breast milk is available for little, little things to make them grow into big things that contain fat and carbs together. So... A food system that we talked about before is just a combo of fat and carbs that drives us to overeat. So I think if your body thinks it's in autumn, you need it need to maybe you can move it through to winter, which is the low carb keto sort of you know drop back the carbohydrate, and then I suppose the next step is the PSMF where you drop drop back the fat and the carbohydrate and get enough protein and and ideally fiber at the same time, and it'll just drop weight so you look at the bears that cycle massively around the year they just gain massive amounts of weight for winter and drop it all in spring and they look like two different animals but we basically function the same way that if we provide our body with foods that are the combo of fat and carbs together we just go nuts for those foods we can't stop eating them because our body thinks winter is coming no pun intended (laughs) go nuts oh look at that i didn't mean that I never realized that, you know, it's true. I mean, pretty much nuts are, people ask me how to lose weight. Everything's, you know, just not working. I'm like, if you're looking at actual food. Nuts and dairy. Yeah. Yeah. Dairy. I mean, because if you think about dairy, I mean, it's literally, it's hormonal purpose is to make you gain weight. I feel like it's one of the only food categories where it's very hormonal in that sense. And then nuts are, I mean, it's the perfect you know, combination of fats and carbs. Yep. With a bit of salt. Tastes great. I know. So something we haven't touched on that much is actually fasting, which is a huge part of what you talk about because you have your data-driven fasting. So you talk about the importance of actually testing blood sugars before meals rather than after. And Marty, this is something that I've been doing for years. I don't know if it's because I'm scared to test my blood sugars after eating, but I always would test my blood sugar right before eating and kind of use that as an indicator of my metabolic health. Why might that be beneficial to test before eating rather than after? It can be useful to 
you don't want to see your blood sugars go up a lot and then stay elevated for a long time. What we really want to manage is not just the, the spike, but the area under the curve, the total area under the curve of your blood sugar. So that's zero to seven or 140 milligrams per deciliter or whatever you have across the whole day. So it's just basically a fuel tank. So it's not great to have a, a big spike, but to maintain flat line blood sugars by swapping carbs and protein for refined fat, you may have stable blood sugars, but you've got low satiety, nutrient-poor foods, you're going to be overeating. So I used to go to these low-carb conferences and you know, all these people walking around with their CGMs on and going, oh, I'm trying to keep my insulin low by, you know, I'm just drinking refined fats. And you look at them and go, no, I don't, don't, don't think that's working for you. Maybe there's something wrong with this theory. So what you really want to do is wait until your glucose fuel tank is depleted and you actually need to refuel. So you don't want to wait for it to be through the floor because you'd be really, really hungry and you'll just eat everything and anything that you can. Donuts, cheesecake. I love peanut butter and yogurt. It's my favorite go-to to just smash the you know energy back in when I'm really hungry. But you don't want to let it go too low, but you want it to be depleted below your normal blood sugar where you start to feel hungry. So yeah, that's a really handy metric to say, am I really hungry? Do I really need to refuel? Or am I just dreaming of last night's leftovers that were really yummy or I'm just bored or I'm lonely or you know some other reason that I'm eating? You can validate your hunger with your current blood sugar and it's not, you don't need to get a get to silly 60 milligrams per deciliter before you eat. It's just let's get it a little bit lower than what you um, used to. Like I'm really fascinated by the idea of tiny habits and progressive overload from my bodybuilding lifting experience you just you know progressively dial things up you don't go i want to lose weight so i'm going to fast for two weeks or i'm going to fast for 382 days like angus burberry work for him it can work for me most people don't actually end up with a better body composition at the end of that approach but by just progressively dialing things back and, and learning to understand your actual hunger and and dial down your energy levels in your in your blood, you dial back the energy in your fat stores and, you know, it just works really well. Do you find that people tend to have a blood sugar set point where they naturally tend to be a certain level and it might be higher for other people or lower? Yeah, yeah. Like I just mentioned my bodybuilding, you know, not that I'm a bodybuilder by any means, but I like to, I've listened to people like Ted and Lewis and understand that lifting heavy is important. So over time, I've started with an empty bar and, and now I'm getting to the point where I just can't keep on increasing the weight I can lift. You find your limit and in a similar way, your blood sugars find their own lower limit that they'll sort of, once they drop to a, a lower, healthier level, your body will then start to tap into your fat stores more and more. So once glucose is depleted, your body will use your body fat. And the sort of, you know, generally you know, 90 to 100 milligrams per deciliter waking blood sugars is a is a really healthy optimum place to be. But it varies between from person to person based on the, the diet, when they eat, you know, how much lean mass, how much weight they're carrying, it can vary. And what about a situation, because you just spoke to how if you test your blood sugar and it's high and you think you're hungry, you know, maybe you actually don't need to eat yeah, or, or you don't need fuel, you just need protein and nutrients. Okay, protein and nutrients. Oh, okay, that actually that answered my question because I was I was thinking I was like 
wondering, cause you had said earlier that, you know, for example, if a person has high blood sugar and then they eat protein and that actually lowers it. So, okay. That's a big clarification for me. That's our secret hack of data-driven fasting. If you're, if you're hungry and you have to eat, prioritize protein and nutrients and the body will use the energy from your body while you get the nutrients you need. So it's a win-win. Let's say that you're fasted and you test your blood sugar and it's high. Or some people will drink wine before a meal and it might lower their blood sugar. Or what if you took berberine in it to lower it? Like, Is that a method that's even worth going or... If you're taking berberine and doing data-driven fasting, then keep on doing it. But I don't think it's one way or the other. I don't really feel passionate. Alcohol's really fascinating. I know it's a passion topic of yours, but it, it tends to actually drop your blood blood sugar. I suppose it's it's empty calories in a way, but if you know it's got a high oxidative priority and probably a, a high dietary induced thermogenesis. So if theoretically alcohol by itself would be more satiating calorie per calorie if you're still making good choices and, and feel good. Personally I don't tend to feel good the next day after much alcohol, but the wife is fine with alcohol. So it's fascinating how different people deal with alcohol in different ways. You have seen it correlate to satiety? alcohol i think potentially theoretically it could like we talked about the drinking man's diet you know it's just half a bottle of wine and and steak and people lost a ton of weight pre-atkins i think alcohol by itself can promote satiety as long as you're making good food choices i think what people drink if they're drinking beer and cocktails that contain a whole lot of other stuff and then they get the munchies and go for the kebabs and unlimited donuts and whatever the next day then probably a negative impact, but yeah, that's not a not a key part of our system. It, it actually it ties in well to how we open this whole conversation because people will often say or think that drinking made them gain weight, but the alcohol itself, it did not become the body fat. You know, it was whatever you ate while drinking, kind of like fat in the context of carbs. I feel like the actual carbs some of them are converted to fat, but probably I think the majority of the fat gain was from the fat that you ate with the carbs. Yeah. Anybody's got to burn off the carbs and the alcohol and the exogenous ketones and the MCT oil before it can burn the fat. So any fat that you eat then gets stored. What do you think you were most surprised about? Like, What did you do the biggest 180 on as far as thinking things were a certain way with macros and diet and all of that to where you are now? Yeah. Oh, wow. I think I'd always heard the adage that eat fat to satiety, eat fat to satiety. So eating more fat would make you more satiated calorie for calorie. So then once I looked at the data from half a million days of my fitness pal and 40,000 days of people using Nutrient Optimizer and the satiety studies from University of Sydney, you see the same trend that fat calorie for calorie is not more satiating and the dietary induced thermogenesis of fat is very low as well. So it's not like your alcohol or protein that you're going to use a lot of the energy to before you store it. It just gets stored or is used really easily in your body. It doesn't. It's a very efficient form of fuel. It's not a bad thing if you need energy, but if you're got excess stored energy, then dialing it back is is helpful. 
I as well definitely had that huge 180 because I first came to everything with Atkins and I had this idea that all the fat, (laughs) unlimited fat, and I won't store it as fat because there's no carbs present and just might not quite be that case. One sort of last question, when people are following your approach and doing data-driven fasting and are in your community, do you have different types of diets that people can follow, different types of macros? Because now people might have listened to all this and they're probably wondering, okay, so what should my macros actually look like? So what are the different options for people and what would be the resource for listeners to learn more about all of that? Yeah, it just depends on where you're at and what your goals are. If you want to stabilize your blood sugars because they're really erratic, then dialing back your insulin load is really helpful. If you need therapeutic ketosis for whatever reason, then we've got to, you know, we can design a diet. We have designed recipe books for, for therapeutic ketosis. But if you've got body fat to lose, then you want to dial back your your dietary fat and prioritize protein and nutrients. So we've got a a high protein to energy ratio book. So we've got a bunch of recipe books and food lists on the blog. So if you go to the top and look at personalized food lists and recipes, you can look at all the different types of approaches that, you know, we get caught in this extreme debate of, you know, low carb versus high carb or low fat versus high fat or, you know, low protein percentage versus high protein percentage. But you just need to say, where am I at now and how do I, you know, we generally dial in our diet intuitively to maintain what we're doing and if you want to make a a change you just need to move a little bit move the needle a little bit from where you are now to 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 make progress and then when you stop making progress you move the needle a little bit more so if you're doing 20 percent protein now then try 25 you don't need to go to 50 like ted Naiman overnight you'll probably go insane doing that and go protein's not satiating so you just need to make a a small progressive change and keep on moving towards your goal. It's ironic because speaking about how making that little change in the the macros can have such a big effect. I think people often think that that's the case with calories. Like, oh, if I, you know, just reduce my calories by like 200 calories every day, I'll lose weight. And it just doesn't work <laughs> for a lot of people. If you keep eating donuts and try to eat a little less donuts, eventually you'll, your body will go, I need the fuel. I'm going to just binge and find a way to get that energy back or it'll downregulate. But if you protein and nutrients and dial back your fuel your body will go hey this is what i need and i've got fuel to burn on my body so i'm, I'm happy and your lizard brain chills out and it's all a whole lot easier and smoother once you actually nurture and nourish your body with what it actually needs and you know you think you're in control with your brain all the time but your amygdala your lizard brain is really what's in control and if you don't give your lizard brain what it wants you know it doesn't end well I know. No kidding. Well, this has been amazing. Were there any other topics or anything that you wanted to touch on? I feel like I hit you with a lot. <laughs> no, it's been so much fun. I'm really, really chuffed that uh, you've you've dived into my work and really, it's been a great conversation. Really, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I love talking about this stuff and thanks for giving me the opportunity to to share it with your listeners. I have been so excited about this. You're just doing wonderful things. And so for listeners, I know I feel like this conversation, we we went really deep into everything, but when you read Big Fat Keto Lies, it's so approachable. It's so easy to read. You will just walk away feeling like you understand so many things. And Marty has been so kind. He's actually 
offering it to my audience for 30% off, which is amazing. So if you go to melanieavalon.com slash big fat keto lies, you can get the book there for 30% off. Don't even hesitate. Get it now. Like stop listening right now and and download it because it's absolutely incredible. Your data-driven fasting book, it's free at data-driven fasting. Yeah. Free download the manual from datadrivenfasting.com. So we've just, we got so many questions about data-driven fasting. We threw them into this massive manual with all the FAQs, which is literally another book of how to optimize your blood sugars with diet and intermittent fasting dialed in for your goal. So yeah, just people loving it. We spent five years trying to teach people how to eat. Now they just want to know how not to eat. But eventually they realize that what you eat is important as how often you eat. So it works really well with, you know, what's more important than what you eat and when you eat. And they work intertwined together. And we've tried to unpack that into a a cohesive system. Well, I love it. It's so, so incredible. I'm so grateful for your work. And that brings me to the last question that I ask every single guest on this show. And you might've heard it before because I know you've listened to my shows before. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Yeah, I've just been really grateful for people in the community um, that I interact with who have taken this up and put it into practice and, uh, you know, developing a, a movement around nutritional optimization and just people are, are helping each other and supporting each other and going, this works for me. I want to help you on the path. And I just love to see that. I love to see the community because technology and knowledge is only one little part of the the puzzle piece. And if we build a community around it, we can create a movement that can you know, hopefully build on the, what we learned from low carb and keto and, and keep on moving people forward into you know getting the results they want from from their diet and not falling prey to people who just want to sell you cheap crap and tell you it's great stuff. I could not agree more. And I was just thinking the fact that you have this amazing, engaged community, seeing all these results, like communities don't just happen. Like you can't just pull a community out of <laughs> out of thin air. There's got to be something actually working there. So I think it really speaks to just the massive, wonderful information and knowledge and insight that you're providing so many people. So I cannot thank you enough for your work. I'm such a fan. I'm really looking forward to all of your future work and we're just going to have to stay in touch and be friends and you got to come back on hopefully in the future. (laughs) This should be enough for two episodes. So, you know, we'll do a third sometime. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marty. This has been amazing. Thanks so much, Melanie. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.